Well, I decided to uh, have a series of conversations with uh, friends, uh, mentors, trusted voices in my life, uh, a good number of them from our Liberty Church community. Um, we're just calling them Conversations for Change. And uh, my heart in pulling these conversations uh, together is, uh, you know, it's certainly in part in response to a lot of recent events around um, race and injustice and uh, heartache and lament um, in my own city here in New York and really all, all around the world. Um, it's an important time for the body of Christ to be having constructive conversations. And so I, I come to these conversations um, to learn, to grow, um, hopefully to grow in my understanding. And my hope in having these conversations, it'll, it'll help begin a change in me that I want to see in the world around me. Um, and so hopefully for whoever is watching this and wherever you are, it would serve you well on your journey too as we grow into the likeness of Christ. And so I um, am going to be joined today by my friend, Philip Atmore. Hey, Philip. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Philip, well, I'll let Philip introduce himself, but um, Philip is uh, one of the elders at uh, Liberty Church these days and uh, loved and trusted uh, leader and voice in our community. But Philip, give us a little bit of like, give us a quick snapshot of, of who is Philip Atmore. Yes, well, Philip Atmore is from Pasadena, California. So I am a SoCal boy at heart <laughs> and uh, born and raised there. And I started singing, dancing and acting when I was three years old. And I went to an arts high school in Los Angeles. And when I graduated, got bit by the bug. I had to do it professionally as a career. And so uh, in terms of career, I have um, credits that span from Broadway to film and TV. And uh, I love just the arts and creativity and, and uh, exploring how to use my voice in those mediums. And yeah, and then I have a bit of a colorful background in terms of church and ministry as well. And I just love the kingdom of God too. And um, yeah, and I love New York City and I love our community. So, you know, those are kind of just little tidbits of my life. I'm married to an amazing woman, Joy Atmore. Wow. Yeah, also just uh, she's she's a pillar in my life, but in in um, Liberty Church and yeah, she's our and care director globally. Does a great job. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Care director and director of treasures uh, mm -hmm. in New York, and um, she's just amazing. So we've been married for going on five years now. She's from Liverpool, England, mm -hmm. and. Uh, we have a little boy named Freedom Alexander Atmore, who's just uh, three and a half, three and a half months old now. So, um, so you know, we are so cute. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we are. We are doing uh, doing the family thing, and I think I'm really enjoying uh, quite possibly my my favorite role. Actually, my favorite role mm -hmm. as of late is is just being a father. So. Um, He's, he's amazing and already teaching me lots of things. So, yeah, those are just little tidbits. So I think it'd be fair to say it's been a very challenging time. Oof. I mean, as if, you know, COVID-19 and the pandemic kind of shut down deal wasn't enough. But, I mean, we're, 
we're having these conversations in real time in the midst of a lot of very troubling events and commentary. And do you want to, I mean, do you want to speak to um, some of the things that you've been seeing of late? And then, and then I guess, um, as you and I have talked about this, uh, I feel like you have such a, a kingdom gospel um, revelation of the times that we're living in. I'd love you, I don't know, maybe just share what you've been walking through and what, what Jesus has been showing you. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe I should just give a little bit of background because I, you know, honestly, in this in this last week, uh, the emotions have kind of run the gamut. <laughs> my my emotions have have been all over the place, and not in an out of control way, but but in a way that has been necessary to process what has what has taken place, especially with what's happening in Minneapolis, literally with Minneapolis on fire right now. And so, I think before I speak into that because I definitely have some opinions. Um, I should maybe just give a little bit of, of background in terms of my experience with racism and um, you know obviously I'm black <laughs> or maybe didn't know I don't sometimes in New York um, people think that I'm Dominican or Puerto Rican and so they'll speak Spanish to me and I'm like oh I don't know I maybe I should know though. Uh, <laughs> you know I just so enjoy that about New York City that um, it truly is a uh, melting pot culture but so I am uh, the son of a Black American, William Atmore, and, and uh, Monica Atmore, who's from Germany originally. And he was the first Black man that my mother ever met, and they got married and were married for 50 years before my dad passed away. And they got married actually before it was legal for interracial couples uh, to be wed in certain parts of the States. Um, they got married in 1959, and I was a surprise. I came 20 years after my siblings and uh, raised in Los Angeles, as I mentioned. And so growing up in L.A., um, you know, for, for a, a lot of the experiences that I had, we lived in a, in a mixed neighborhood in the sense that uh, mixed in age and in, um, and in race. And uh, when I went to schools, they were... Uh, there wasn't necessarily um, a dominant, I, I didn't feel alone or isolated, you know, in Los Angeles, I'd say, unless it's like a private school situation. I went to Catholic school, but it was, it was pretty integrated. Um, so not that you don't experience racism in, in different ways in that sense, but I'd say the, the biggest amount of racism that I experienced over and over again was with my experience with um, the police. And, uh, before I go into that, I just want to say my dad was in the army for 20 years and he served in, you know, served our country. And then uh, after he served our country, he was then a city attorney uh, work, or sorry, worked for the city attorney of Los Angeles as an investigator. Mm. And, um, and so he was on the side of the law in, in, in the sense that he was a public servant in terms of investigating cases uh, accident cases and whatnot for the city attorney of Los Angeles. And so uh, when I say, when I speak about my experience with um, police, it's not to um, cast a shadow over um, law enforcement in general, but it is to say that there's good reason yeah. for why uh, people of color and specifically in this point in time, black Americans um, are hesitant to trust law enforcement because there is an age old history between specifically law enforcement and people of color in 
uh, all around the nation. And so one of the things that you are taught as a young black male from, from early on is that not if, but when you begin to get pulled over by the police, because when you start driving, that's, that's an additional thing as, as an African-American male. You, um, you, know, you, you turn 16, you get your license, but then you have a conversation about conduct when you're pulled over by the police, because it will happen. So you're told, you know, to um, keep your hands where they can be seen and to remain calm and whatever happens not to mouth off or get heated because it can only exacerbate a situation. So I, that was ingrained in me from the time that I started to, you know, grow into my teens and, and for good reason. And so uh, like I said, there's been lots of experiences that I've had, but I will share the worst <laughs> just to give some some con some context. I was driving in Los Angeles on Sunset Boulevard, um, <clears throat> approaching La Cienega Boulevard. These are just famous streets in in uh, in West Hollywood, but those, that's where I was driving and getting ready to make a left on La Cienega. And I was with another friend who was sitting in the passenger seat, um, who was also black, and we happened to have just gotten into a disagreement. So we looked angry <laughs> um, and uh, it, was at, it was at night as well. So we looked like two angry black men in a car driving at night, which is just, you know, depending on where you are, apparently a bad combination. So I'm getting ready to uh, make a left-hand turn on La Cienega Boulevard. My friend happens to look outside his passenger window uh, you know, kind of with an intense look on his face. And um, he locks eyes with the sheriff's car, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, which is pulled up right next to us. And then he looks back over at me and he says, we're going to get pulled over. I said, what are you talking about? He said, we're going to get pulled over. And no sooner than he said that, this sheriff's car swerved behind me before I could turn, flashed their red and blue lights in the rearview mirror, and uh, as I gave my signal to get all the way over from the left-hand turning lane, which obviously takes a while to get all the way over then to the right to pull over, uh, this sheriff then gets on the loudspeaker and says, pull over. And so, you know, just to kind of add shame to the situation, I, you know, very frantically finally made it over and uh, proceeded to follow the plan, which was to you know, turn my car off, put my hands where they could be seen. And I rolled my window down so as not to have too much activity when he approached me and uh, I just waited for him. And when he came up to the window, the first thing that he said to, to me was, you boys been smoking weed? And it, it was interesting. There was something about the way that he said boys, like, the emphasis on the B like smacked me in the back of the neck. And I felt all of a sudden like I was a runaway slave in Alabama in 1898. And, um, and I looked at him and I said, um, no officer, uh, you know, I don't smoke weed and um, certainly not while I'm driving, <laughs> you know, and I'm still waiting for him to give a reason as to why we've been pulled over. And he asked for my license. So I gave him my license. And, um, and then he says, step out of the car, please. And I, at this point, you know, I've heard stories, so I'm not surprised, but it's, it's kind of like when this starts happening to you as a black male, um, 
it kind of plays out in real time where you, for me, it's a situation where I felt like I start to watch what's happening while I'm experiencing it at the same time. So I step out of the car and um, he puts my wallet and my phone and my keys on, on top of my car. And uh, <clears throat> he then has me put my hands on the top of the hood of the car and he begins to pat me down. And, uh, you know, he gets to my jeans. I had a pair of tight diesel jeans on. And uh, he finds a, a lump in my pocket and he goes, what is this? You got any knives on you? Got any knives? Um, I've never ceases, never ceases to amaze me the way in these situations, the worst is assumed about a person of color. Mm. And uh, I just laughed at myself because I, I don't, I can't ever think of a time that I've even had a Swiss army knife in my pocket. And so, um, needless to say, he pulls out a shiny pair of nail clippers <laughs> because no thug like me would ever walk around with unsightly cuticles. And so I just kind of let this play out. And, uh, you know, he, as he's processing his disappointment, I'm thinking he's going to let me go at this point because it's just ridiculous and just getting embarrassing for him. And then he says, um, put your hands behind your back. And I said, excuse me? Now, at this point, I you know, still trying to remain calm, but a bit nervous and not really wanting to go along with what's about to happen. He says, put your hands behind your back. And he, and he then grabs me, puts my hands behind my back and starts to manhandle me over to the sheriff's car. Now what's intriguing is that he never handcuffs me. And my theory, and I don't want to assume the worst of him, but my theory is that he wanted me to give him a reason to arrest me, but I did not fight him. He manhandles me, pulls me over to the sheriff's car, opens the back door of the sheriff's car, and he pushes my head in, and he closes the door on me. And I'm now locked inside the sheriff's car. The back, you know, the passenger, or it's not, the, uh, the, the back seat doors automatically lock when you're an assailant. And I'm so now literally in this cage because there's a crate in front of me and his partner is sitting in the passenger seat. And this man uh, proceeds to search my car without a warrant, has my other friend um, put his hands on the hood of the sheriff's car, and he just starts searching my car with no warrant. And so now um, I turn to his, par his partner, who's again in the car with me, sitting in the passenger seat in front of me, and I said, sir, don't, don't you need a warrant to search my car? And, and he doesn't really respond. I said, now, um, is there a reason why you pulled me over? And he said, we'll figure that out once we decide whether or not we're going to let you go. And he says it with this like cheeky smirk, like this is a game. Um, mm. A game of let's see what we can find so we can take those Negroes to jail. I mean, that really is what the situation was. So, you know, it's not a game because it, anyway. So he says that, uh, you know, we'll figure out, you know, whether or not, you know, once we decide whether or not we're going to let you go. And I, um, and he says, uh, whose car is it? I said, it's my father's car. And if you need to speak with him, you can call the city attorney's office where he lives. He's like, well, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Pasadena. Isn't that the other way? I said, I don't know, officer. And he said, ooh, the city attorney, is that supposed to scare me? I bet you don't even have a relationship with your father. He says that to me. And now, you know, obviously that's a stereotype. Um, the whole absent father story. Um, it's not true for all black families. and. Uh, you know, there's lots of 
uh, present fathers. I'm one of them actually now. And so um, I turned to him and I said, well, so that's a stereotype. And at this point, I, I'm starting to get a little bit irritated. And so I just, I just stopped myself and I said, you know what? I don't know why I said this, uh, but I said, I'm just going to let God get the glory in this conversation. And I just leaned back mm-hmm. and I just shut up because we weren't going anywhere. We weren't going anywhere with this banter. He was, I mean, it literally felt like I was talking to um, a prepubescent child who was trying to rile, rile things up. So then he shifts his focus over to my friend who still is outside, standing outside with his hands on the hood. And he begins to harass him. And he asks for his license. Where are you from? New York? Oh, you got a New York attitude. Stand up so you look dignified. He actually said that. Just berating us. And um, he comes back into the passenger car and sits down and his partner is finishing up searching my car and he's literally torn, torn the car up in terms of just looking at every nook and cranny for whatever he was expecting to find. He was actually expecting to find something. And then I saw him as he started to walk away, he looked at the trunk and I could tell he really wanted to look there. Anyway, he kept, kept moving and he came back to um, the sheriff's car and he came to the driver's side, um, looked through the window at his partner and his partner who's sitting in the passenger side said, nothing. And he said, nothing. Then he shifts the focus to me and he says, well, uh, you boys know why we pulled you over, right? Boys, there's the boy thing again. And, and I said, no, sir, I don't. <laughs> and he said, well, uh, you know, the noise or ordinance law here, don't you? Um, Again, another stereotype, like, you know, all black people like to bump loud music, blaring music through the neighborhood. I looked at him and I said, sir, my radio wasn't even on. <laughs> you know, he said, well, uh, well, maybe it, maybe the music came from another car. I said, officer, if you heard the music from another car, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But can I get out of this car now? I was really heated at this point. And um, so I got out of the car and I got their names. Ironically, the one of the officer's names um, was Hausmeiser, which translated from German means master of the house. Um, which, you know, there's no comment there, but it's just me, the artist in me, the poet in me just thinks that that's ironic that someone whose last name is master of the house is calling me a boy like I'm a slave and treating me like one. And Mm -hmm. that was probably the worst, most demeaning experience that I've had with police. And it was dark. It was our word against theirs and anything could have happened Mm. if we had given them a reason. You know what strikes me too is as you share your story is that it's it's something that I've never experienced. And I think a part of the wrestle of the times that we're living in right now, maybe for a lot of people, I guess I can only speak from my own experience as a a white person is... um, I think there's such a value right now on actually listening um, to each other's stories because just uh, because I haven't experienced something doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Just because I, do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. so I, I wonder what Philip, you know, you're fine. I mean, you're a story storyteller. I mean, even what you do, like who you are, you know, you're, you're a prophetic voice and but you know, what do you see? I mean, talk to me about the power 
of voice, giving platform, and more than that, giving honor um, to people's stories and into their experiences. You know, um, yeah, about that in the time that we're living in, and where does and where does all of this intersection? Like what you believe to be true with your theology, because you have a theology of justice too, right? Don't you yeah. know what I mean? I mean, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Well, so it's interesting. I, I can, again, you know, in this conversation, it's so interesting because what I find is my perception of some white evangelical, evangelical leaders in the church and some major white prophetic voices in the church that have such in, impact and I've been personally impacted by mm -hmm. and have eyes to e eyes to see and ears to hear about certain things, but have such blindness, blindness as it relates to things that because I can't escape it, because this is the body that I live in, I've had no choice but to lean into God and 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 receive from. And it and it is interesting in times like these. I I don't expect someone to be an expert. Um, on racial injustice, especially if you have white skin. But what I do expect is that if we are ministers of the gospel, that we are in a third culture realm. And I think what happens is that we know the age old proverb where it says, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We know that. We know that that's what the word says. And yet, in these situations, when, you know, you have images of a white man literally standing on a black man's neck until he's dead, and images of um, Trayvon Martin with a hood on, and you see a thug, but everyone else is grieving the loss of a 17-year-old boy. <laughs> who has black skin and you know and and uh, there's there's what people don't understand is is that this is not race racial injustice is not a subject or a ministry point for people of color <laughs> it's actually our lives and hopefully our lives intersecting the life of Christ so that we can speak into it and, and to be honest, like, I think that that's what Christianity is. It is God is um, intimately concerned um, and passionate about piercing the hearts of all of his kids so that his gospel, his gospel can be known through each person. Let me ask a quick question. So you mentioned yeah. third culture. Unpack that just for a second. Yeah. So, it's, so third culture, it comes from this idea um, that your your main your 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 point of reference your point of view is different than uh mainstream points of view in terms of of um macro culture so for instance you hear a lot of times people talk about the white church or the black church or um or even just the, in in general like you grew up in a white home someone grew up in a black home for me because my my mother is white and my father is black they call that a third culture experience because um, I now have a situation where um, my microculture is actually influenced by 
a white European woman and a black American. And so therefore I, I don't identify with uh, terms like black home and white home. Not that I can't identify as an African-American, sure. but it, 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 just, uh, it just means that your microculture um, is, it, it speaks to this idea of microculture, mm. that it's actually way more personal than the labels that we put on our experiences. And I think we, we, we lean into our labels for safety, but really each of us has, you know, each of us has our own microculture in terms of how we were raised. Okay. So if we think about it, everyone comes from a unique culture from behind closed doors. It's just that we choose to lean into um, a macro culture understanding for safety, especially when it relates to race. And it doesn't make any sense right. in the end because, um, you know, it, especially as it, when it relates to right and wrong. So military kids as well have a third culture experience because they have to do a lot of traveling. You know, the army, they're called known as army brats. They're exposed to lots of different cultures. And so it, it just means something different, you know, as, as Christians, like it's, it's entirely a third culture, if not actually a, a new culture, because we're all supposed to die, <laughs> you know, like it, the, if, if, if we're really following Jesus, um, he's, he's really, after us dying to ourselves and picking up the cross and following him, which means that our own understanding goes with that. Um, so um, it's just interesting looking at all of these different things. And I, it, it baffles me that when you see an image like um, George Floyd laying on the ground and a white man officer, a person in power abusing his power to the point of murder, and then you see the result justice denied until today and hopefully you know this officer is charged to the to the fullness um but there's you see the denial of justice and then you see the result in terms of minneapolis on fire and people choose to focus on the rioting mm. and i'm not going to speak into whether or not i agree with the rioting i just will say that it's a result of a denial of justice and if we're if we are more concerned about um, that than the proximate cause that is the death of a man that we refuse to grieve over. If we've missed that point of, of grieving, that, that point of grief, mm. uh, then we should keep our mouths shut about our opinions about writing because there's a reason why, <laughs> you know. Well, um, I, I remember too, I remember you sharing the experience. I guess maybe we haven't got time to tell the whole story, but I know recently you were out running um, yeah and and you share why why you're running and then what you experienced ironically yeah well it's so i uh, for i run i run with mod is a is a hashtag that um was created um in response to uh promoting justice for ahmaud arbery who we all know what has happened to him what happened to him actually months ago and then the video finally came out of him being pursued by white assailants and murdered in the streets. And so because he was a runner and because the whole idea was that we can't even run while we're black, um, in, in solidarity, lots of people were going out, white, black, whatever, you know, just Americans running out, running for Mod. And so ironically, the day on the day on Ahmaud Arbery's birthday was the day I, I went out and it was raining in May. And so I, I had my hood on, which is danger, danger. 
uh, <laughs> as well as my COVID mask because that's the law. And, um, and I was wearing all black. And so I understand what that looks like, but I was just abiding to the weather and obeying the law. And so I live in Harlem and I was entering the uh, north, north side of Central Park. And as I was entering the park, there was a cop car that was getting ready to turn and screeched right in front of me. And they were trying to decide whether or not they were gonna stop me. And I just ignored them. I was like, I don't, I'm not gonna do this today. I'm not gonna play this game. I just went right into the park and just kept going, kept running. And I got around and I was running around, there's a pond on the north end of the park, uh, past another cop car outside the um, uh, botanical gardens. And then um, just before I started carving around the pond, there was another like little cop cart that came speeding down the hill. And I'm the only one there. I'm the only one there speeding down the hill with their lights flashing. And I said, nope, I, I just kept going. I just did not want to engage. And so there's this, um, what I was processing in that moment was the fact that it is common for people of color and specifically in this time, I'm gonna speak from, from the perspective of black Americans. Uh, it's way more common than we actually talk about. We absorb every single day something as it relates to microaggression or um, wanting to trust um, the people who are empowered to protect us and yet given a reason not to. And we just absorb these experiences and um, depending on who we talk to, we either stuff them down or uh, because we're expected to, or we just kind of say, well, that's just the way it is. And I found this place recently where I'm like, no, that's not the way it is. That's not the way it's going to be anymore. Every Every time this happens, it's not, and I actually felt God say, like, you're not to absorb this anymore. You're to speak out. And I think that, um, I, th I think the situation right now, you know, you're mentioning this kind of theology on justice. We have to understand that justice is God's idea. Right. And that in the Old Testament, especially, justice was always the spear point of a prophetic word. It was all, <laughs> Isaiah 61, you know, and Isaiah 58 um, is all about justice, moving in justice. And, it's, and yet it's a prophet speaking. And, and then we have the person of Jesus who, by coming into the world, fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy. So he is the fulfillment of all justice. And when he died on the cross, he paid for that as well. And yet he's invited us into this journey of seeing the fulfillment of justice on earth as it is in heaven. You know, the thing is it takes partnership. And, you know, while I, there's a mystery in that, you know, there's a mystery in the tension of he's paid for it. He's paid for the check mm -hmm. and, and us waiting for the fulfillment of it. But in our waiting, our movement matters. Yeah. And, and what I see happening in America at the moment is we like to pick and choose what we think is on God's heart. We like to pick and choose. So, you know, uh, we love to champion, um, you know, uh, anti-abortion, which, you know, I'm pro-life. My wife and I have been on a journey of even just having our child, like, and, the, the, and, and valuing the life of unborn children. But to me, what's so baffling is that there's this huge platform for championing unborn children. But then when it comes to people who are living and breathing on earth, 
who are constantly dying and the commonality is the color of their skin, there's either silence or even resistance and anger when people of color begin to speak out because they are traumatized by the event. And I, I remember um, I, I had a dream a long time ago and it was a big influential church, which I won't, I won't mention the name, but I, I essentially had this dream where I was in the waiting room of uh, a conference, of a church conference. And ironically, my dad was speaking at this conference and he wasn't a minister in real life, but we have lots of ministers in our family, in our heritage. And so my dad was speaking on stage in this conference and I was in the waiting, like in the foyer where all the people are milling around. And um, <laughs> uh, in the midst of the hustle and bustle, uh, this woman, from the other side of the room turns to me and she says, Philip, I have a word for you. And she starts to pray. And I, I don't know what she's saying in the moment, but the impact of words is so powerful that I start to cry. And in the midst of crying, there's another woman that comes to me and she tries to pull me away. She shouts back at the woman. He doesn't need to hear this. He's crying. And the woman who's praying for me shouts back, no, he needs to hear this. Philip, remember the promises of God for they are deep down inside of you. Mm. And in that moment, I touch my gut and I start to dwell on this mystery of promises that I didn't know that were already there. And in the next part of the dream, and so the thing is like, that's like the wham, bam, powerful part of the dream, right? Um, it's like, whoa, remember the promises of God, what a good word. So what's interesting is that's not the way the dream ends. The dream ends with my father leaving not out of the main entrance, but the back entrance of this church conference after speaking. And I met him outside in the back and I said, well, well, how did it go, dad? And he said, well, I spoke about being black, but it wasn't good enough. And that was the end of the dream. I was so uncomfortable with sharing that part for such a long time until all of a sudden in the age of social media, we started to have evidence of what has always been happening, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old who was shot in the gut immediately for having a BB gun. Immediately on the cop arrives on the scene, shoots him. You know, all of the names uh, that are on the list of black people who have been murdered in America in the last decade. And, um, and watching the response of anger <laughs> in white Christians, and I, and I understood that, that, um, that this is on God's heart. Yeah. And, and that if we're going to be so bold as prophetic voices to speak specifically, to name the issues of injustice like abortion and um, all, which, you know, obviously people, there's, there's nuances there in terms of why people are even put in position. So I'm not, I'm not gonna speak in, I don't, I don't wanna cast shame on people who have been in that situation, but you know, all of the different, but I'm just saying as Christians, we love to champion that, but we deny the justice of people who are alive. But, but we need to begin to put a name and a face to racial injustice as it relates to black and blacks and whites. There's a specific history that we need to address. And if we have an issue with Black Lives Matter, <laughs> you know, then we need to read the Old Testament, which is essentially one big Jewish Lives Matter hashtag. And in the New Testament, you know, it still continues and we get to be grafted into the inheritance of a firstborn Jewish son. <laughs> and so uh, culture matters to God and we keep pretending like it doesn't. We keep pretending like 
God created color, but he doesn't want to see it. It doesn't exist to him. And yet, time after time in the Bible, it matters what someone looked like. It mattered to God that Esther was Jewish and pretty, and that she stuck her pretty little Jewish neck out for the sake of her people. It mattered to God. It mattered enough to Jesus that in, even in the, in the face of the, bi, the, the bigotry of his own disciples, he went right up to the Samaritan woman, mm-hmm. who one was a woman and two was a Samaritan, who was, represented a, a, a group of people who were completely rejected by Jewish people. And it mattered to him that he would demonstrate just how big and wide his love is. And, and by speaking directly to the heart of the Samaritan woman, she actually, before anyone in the New Testament, became the first evangelist in the Bible, immediately, with having one encounter with Jesus. And so there is, an, there is a theology uh, uh, to, uh, on justice that is personal to God. And, and if we don't recognize the face of God in our current events right now, then we need to ask God for a greater revelation of the cross mm-hmm. and for a greater revelation of what his heart for justice is right here, right now. And we need to ask why we're so hardened to the cries of people who are in pain. And going back to that dream, you know, where I, I, I was in pain, I, I didn't understand what this woman was saying, but I was impacted and I was crying. I really believe this woman who tried to pull me away represents the voice of the church that is uncomfortable with pain. We are un- we think that people who are in pain are disqualified from sharing the gospel, and that is just a lie. Mm. Talking about racial injustices in, in, in racial injustice in America, especially right here and right now, because it keeps happening, and I believe that this is the God, like talking about racial injustice is not a distraction from the gospel, it is an entry point. Right. George Floyd is actually being honored. He was honored in Christianity Today for the legacy that he left in Texas. He was a minister of the gospel. And he spoke out against violence in black, black teen, black, uh, the lives of black teens. Mm-hmm. And that's who, uh, you know, this white officer stomped, that's whose neck was stomped on. I mean, we're talking about a revivalist here. We may not know it, but God does. We're talking about a revivalist. And, and so when we as, I say we as white Christians, and look at someone like George Floyd, and we see him on the ground, and he's dead now. And our response is to go, well, we don't know the whole story. Something must have happened, which is the common narrative in every situation, when someone black dies, especially as it relates to law enforcement, or we start hashtagging Blue Lives Matter, which no one is saying, you know, calling out the injustice within laws, law enforcement is not roping all, all of law enforcement in. Right. But, but um, when we are defensive in our reaction as opposed to compassionate, how far away are we from the heart of God actually? Mm. And I am actually concerned for the hearts of Christians who are bound by a spirit of racism right now. I question the salvation of some people who hate in the name of Jesus, because there will be a day that we will say to Jesus, um, Lord, didn't we do this? And didn't we do this in your name? And he will say, depart from me for I never knew you. That is a reality. And, and this is, see this season and it's season after season, unfortunately, but specifically in this season, while Minneapolis is on fire, 
we have to recognize that Minneapolis was on fire before it was on fire. Mm. There were two black men within two weeks that were murdered by law enforcement. One who ran and was shot in the back and then George Floyd and justice was denied. And, and according to Genesis, when God approaches Cain after Cain murders his brother, he says, where's your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And he says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Blood has a voice. And God knows every single person who has been murdered. Yeah. So one of the threads that I see through all of this too is like our hearts. <clears throat> you know, think about yeah. Proverbs says to guard or keep your heart with all diligence for out of it flow all the issues of life. And it seems yeah. no matter where people listening to this conversation might find themselves in terms of where this perhaps perhaps they're a person of color or perhaps they're experiencing pain a lament right now perhaps perhaps they're coming to this conversation from a totally different viewpoint where this is all yeah new and disorienting and confusing and it all feels a little upside down like talk to me philip maybe this is a good place to land this first conversation is Talk to me for people in different places about their heart. Because I hear, yeah. you know, what, what do people do that are experiencing this injustice? What, 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 do, we, what do we do with that in our heart? Yeah. What, are, what are people who are feeling defensive? Wait a minute, like, I'm, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. me, I, di I didn't do it. Don't, don't, you know, don't, don't involve me. In yeah, it. don't shout at me. Right. <laughs> Yeah. What, yeah. What, are we, what, what is what is the because I think this is all for me. Right before we had this conversation, I prayed yeah. for the Father's heart. Yeah. So, so what is what 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 do where should people be leaning into the Father's heart here, depending on where yeah. they themselves, what part they play right now in this conversation? It's really good, Paul. Yeah. So you know, the the I think the the word that the key word that you used is place. Mm -hmm. Uh, what what place do we land in terms of our hearts? And I think that we need to know that there's a place for us at the table. If we if we look at the kingdom of God, the the banquet table is a huge depiction of of the Father's heart and and how He waits for us and how He prepares a place for us. Mm -hmm. And I I remember um, Joy and I, Joy's my wife. Um, we we had a season where we were a bit mobile and we were doing some ministry, but we also went to, um, to England for a wedding. And um, I was one of the groomsmen at the wedding, which was like a really awesome honor. And <clears throat> so I, I was um, helping to host people. Now the groom was from England and the bride was from somewhere in the South. And so I found myself hosting 45 people from the South thinking, Oh my gosh, there's going to be other Americans. Like, woo, this is going to be super fun. And I, and I immediately found myself, if I'm honest, drowning in a sea of bias and in a sea of Southern microaggression and just moment after a moment where, where people were essentially demanding that I um, give them a reason for my presence in, in very, very um, kind of undercutting ways, specifically a woman saying, oh, well, you must be someone special. 
in terms of just the way that I was dressed. And um, so there were little moments of microaggression. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Um, that led to kind of one major event that was also a huge, it was a point of trauma for me, but it was a huge encounter for me as well. And so <clears throat> Joy and I had started to process this, like this, this sense of like, I shared with her, you know, normally Joy, when I'm in England, I, I'm the American in the group and it's super fun. But now in the presence of 45 people from the South, I'm overwhelmed by my blackness and, uh, by how foreign I feel in the presence of my own countrymen. And I love being black. <laughs> um, she said, yeah, no, no, I've, I've been feeling that. So anyway, at the reception, uh, the bride and groom did something really beautiful. They, instead of sitting alone, they wanted actually um, all of the people in the bridal party to sit as a family at a banquet table together. And they asked Joy and I to sit at the heads of the table which was a huge honor. So I'm literally seated next to the father of the bride. And um, while I'm there, this old white man from the South of, you know, in America comes to me and he says, um, so what did you do to get to sit at the head of the table? And um, I thought he was joking. You know, it's a bit of a strange way to enter into a conversation, but I looked at him and I said, um, oh, well, um, I'm family, you know? And he looks at me with a smile, puts his hand on my shoulder and says, are you sure? And then he just walks away and he just left me there. I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting to be insulted in the presence of my inner circle. And, um, and especially when my wife is from England and in England is actually more of a home for me than that man. And um, so I don't know if you've ever seen Get Out, but there's a scene in the movie where one of the black actors, it begins to um, drown in a place known as the sunken place. And I begin to swim, drown in a sea of this man's bias. And Joy clocks me from the other side of the room and she mouths the words, are you okay? And I said, no, I am not. Mm -hmm. And for the rest of the night, I held a friend's baby for comfort. And, um, Joy had to actually work in that same venue the next day because um, she was working there just to pick up some extra cash. And she left me there in the morning. She came back in the afternoon. I was still buried under the covers from what had happened. She said, well, do you want to talk to the family about it? I said, yeah, I think so. And so we came downstairs and it was my father-in-law and my mother-in-law and some of my white English family. I'm the only person of color in this, in this household. I begin to open my mouth and then I just break and I just start crying. I start weeping uncontrollably um, as I begin to try to express um, the trauma that that, that that moment of absorbing that amount of racism of what that moment was for me. Yeah. Immediately my family surrounds me, my father-in-law, puts his hand on my head and he just starts praying for me. He says, I bless you as a son. I just bless you. I thank God for you. And he just starts speaking blessing over my life. My mother-in-law comforting me, rubbing my back, my, my brother, my Eng white English brothers and sisters just surrounding me in a moment. That I, I wasn't sure how it was. I know that my family loves me, but there's a moment though where you really begin to see whether or not you have allies in your midst. And I mean allies in the name of Jesus, not just in a justice sense. Mm 
mm-hmm. but people really can see when the spirit and cover you in the flesh mm-hmm. because you have to be able to do both. So they just surround me and they cover me. And not only that, my father-in-law then goes to grab a bowl <laughs> and he fills it with water. And I don't know what's happening. I hear the water and then he comes back, takes my shoes and socks off and he just washes my feet. And in that moment, I have an encounter with God. And, you know, for those, you know, in terms of an encounter, what I talk about, what I, what I mean by that is a moment that pulls us out of, um, uh, you know, where we are to, and, and, and brings us higher to a higher perspective. And um, from, for me, it was a vision. I had an open vision, essentially, where while my father's washing my feet, I'm, I'm now with Jesus back in the venue at this, the same traumatic moment where this man comes over and says, what did you do to get to sit at the head of the table? And, and he begins to kind of almost walk me through what had happened and process in my heart and release healing in my heart. And so, and literally step by step. So he says, you know, this is all happening while my brother's, while my father-in-law's washing my feet. He says, so the thing is, you were actually where you have always belonged. You were seated at the table next to the father. Mm-hmm. And the enemy had the audacity to come up to you and use his age old trick by asking the question, did God really say? In Genesis one, it's the enemy's number one trick and he does it over and over and over again. His, his goal is to cause us to doubt that we are who God says we are. Did God really say over and over and over again? So he has the audacity to do that in the presence of family. But in Psalm 23, it says, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So God has turned it around. Mm -hmm. If we know who we are, then we know that the banquet table is not only a place where we feast, it's not only a place where we know who we are in Christ, but it is a place of the vengeance of the Lord in the presence of the enemy. God's form of vengeance to the evil one is to show us off. Mm. And so in this moment, he says, so let me, let me walk you through this. You know, he, he comes up to you, says, did God really say? But the reality is that that man did not know he, who he was either. <laughs> this racist white man from the South is just a scared little orphan. And he was looking for the person who he thought was the most unqualified so that he could get them to move so that he could occupy his position at the table, not realizing that there was already a place for him if he wanted it. And then I feel Jesus say, let me show you what I would have done. And so I am literally now with Jesus where I was. And it's like, Jesus, excuse me. And he sits where I'm sitting and this whole thing plays out. And this man walks up and he says, uh, you know, all that stuff. And, and Jesus says, he gets up and uh, he gives him the seat. He says, oh, sit down. And he pulls a chair next to him. It's just very joyful, like Jesus is. And he says, there's a place for you. And it was wild to watch. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. He then says, justice outside of the church is a pendulum of power. We swing the ball one way to appease cries and we give people power for a season until we're done hearing from it. 
and then the ball swings the other way. And it's just this endless ball pendulum of power that swings from right to left. And if it's about power, it will be endless. But in the kingdom, a justice, a Jesus kind of justice demands reconciliation. The currency is love, which means that the end result is reconciliation. The end result is the ability to forgive, <laughs> which only comes though by the grace from God and in the context of community. So I'm having this encounter with Jesus because of the response of my family speaking identity over me. What happens in the church all the time is that we are so willing to turn someone who's different and angry away as orphans and leave them that way, not realizing that it's just as much an encounter for us to know who we are in our identity as healers as it is for them to know who, who they are as restored sons and daughters of the living God. Racism is an opportunity for us to see like the Father. There is a redemptive gift. It's not just an evil spirit. There's a redemptive gift for everything that the enemy has the audacity to rise up against us for. The Lord raises up a standard. And the standard, and on the other side of racism, we get to see like the Father. So it's no surprise to me that people are blind. Because the, the redemptive gift is to be able to see like the Father. And that is the prophetic. To be, able, to be able to see gold where other people see dirt and pain and anger. And so Jesus says that to me. And, and immediately, I forgive this man. But it took my family surrounding me and, and, and partnering with the love of God and then literally encountering Jesus and knowing Jesus for who he is and seeing him for who he is to remember who I was. And it's interesting because when Peter um, had a moment, he was kind of one of the first people to declare, you know, that Jesus is the son of God. And I love this passage because after Peter declares, you are the son of God, Jesus then turns around and says, and you are a rock and on this rock, I will build my church. And so there's this beautiful dance that we have with God that when we're able to see him for who he is, when we're able to see him in his love, then we're actually able to receive our identity as well. So it matters how we see in this season if we are, so here's what I want to propose. If there are people walking around in a cycle of pain because of racism, I'd like to propose that there's a cycle of blindness as well. Because it requires the whole church to engage in this conversation in order for there to be real reconciliation in the context of the kingdom. There is theology for this. Yeah. It is a narrow road. And we have no business, no business, not addressing racism, specifically right now between blacks and whites. <laughs> you know, we have, to, we have to call it for what it is. You know, with COVID-19, there were Asian Americans who were um, the target of, of racism, you know, because of comments made. Um, and, you know, <laughs> indigenous people, obviously there's a journey there. So you have to, you legitimize the condition by calling it out specifically at the moment we're focusing on the age-old history between blacks and whites and if we don't get that then we basically are in rebellion and choosing to walk in a cycle of blindness and so so the redemptive gift is for all <laughs> why wouldn't we want to see like the father so good i love that uh 
I love the picture of the table. It's always been a picture that's um, spoken to me, you know, that Jesus made room for all of us, his table, <laughs> all yeah. of us, sons and daughters. Um, Ashley Abercrombie, who uh, used to be one of the community pastors with us in New York and is back in LA now, she often said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I don't know whose quote that is, but it's, it's always uh, stuck with me. And mm -hmm. I think, Philip, you know, the stories that you shared and the experience you shared, I think, um, the, 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 I mean, for you, it was real and personal and healing in real time, but I think the, the image for the rest of us of that moment of your family surrounding you, I just pray in some way um, that uh, that would be activated in the body of Christ in the times that we're living yeah. in. And as you point out, I think in these conversations for change, as I talk to people in these coming weeks, um, I'm going to be speaking to people experiencing different things from different uh, viewpoints and from uh, different uh, communities. People have, um, I think of our Hispanic communities and I mean, so, so many. Um, as yeah. I think about the global communities in the times that we're living in and what some, you know, live in our Liberty community in Manzini or in London. And, but to me, the heart of the father, the price that the son paid, that the gospel is good news for all of us. That's right. And I feel, uh, well, I'm grateful. That's what I want to say. I'm just grateful for you sharing. I'm grateful for um, your heart for people. I'm, I'm grateful um, for the spirit that you bring um, to hard conversations. I'm pretty sure in the series of these conversations, um, you know, both me and the people who watch these are going to have opportunities to learn, be offended. Um, <laughs> yeah. But this is it, right? And this is yeah. this is what it is, and this is what it takes for us to grow. It's iron sharpening iron. It's leaning in and it's listening. It's yeah, hard and uncomfortable conversations that lead us to beautiful and healing places of repentance and restoration yeah. and and I believe change. So I love yeah. you, man. And I love you too, Paul. It means the world that you would kick off these um, conversations and there'll be more. Um, so maybe maybe you can just close us in in prayer, you know, for those who've watched this first conversation and, and yeah. That are yet to come to pray over us. Yeah, I wonder, yeah, be honored, yeah. God, I just want to echo your words, let there be light. Mm -hmm. And I pray, God, for such a brilliant light to overcome this church of yours. God, I pray, Father, that. <laughs> uh, Holy Spirit, that you would just overshadow us with your glory that is your love. Mm. God, that you would, where it, it feels like it's been impossible before, God, where, where there are areas in our hearts where uh, there's either just been, it's felt like there's been either lack of understanding or hardness of heart. God, I just pray that you would break open away with your love. 
God, that we would have the grace to walk it out. Mm-hmm. And Father, I pray, Lord, uh, God, you equated um, <laughs> even healing a paralytic um, and forgiveness. You put them on the same level. You said, which is harder? So God, I pray, God, for the grace for forgiveness in this season. God, I pray, Lord, for, um, I pray, God, for identity to rise up. God, I pray that those who have been made orphans by racism, God, I, I pray you are such a great father. You're, um, you love to see your orphans come home. And so I just speak um, identity reformation in the name of Jesus, God. I just speak gold where others have seen dirt. And God, I pray for repentance in the name of Jesus. I even just repent on behalf of my own country mm-hmm. for what's happening, God, uh, in terms of racism, God. And I pray, God, for white um, people who love you, God. I pray that you would give them the Father's heart, God, that you would give all Americans um, the Father's heart, God that we would begin to love like you and be a picture of reconciliation. And I just do pray uh, for that redemptive gift to be able to see like you in the name of Jesus, God. And I thank you, God, that black is beautiful. I thank you, God, that you are undoing every nasty thing that's been spoken against the word black. You are shining. (laughs) You are showing off your kids. You are dusting them off. And you are saying, I made black and I love black. And so, God, may black (laughs) become a term of glory and not one to be cursed. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, amen. It's a good start to uh, an ongoing conversation. And I, I do pray for everybody who's been listening and watching um, that this has made a meaningful contribution. Love you, my friend. Love you too. <laughs>